Act Three of The Devil's Disciple by George Bernard Shaw. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Early next morning, the sergeant at the British headquarters in the town hall unlocks the door of a little empty paneled waiting room and invites Judith to enter. She has had a bad night probably a rather delirious one for even in the reality of the raw morning her fixed gaze comes back at moments when her attention is not strongly held the sergeant considers that her feelings do her credit and is sympathetic in an encouraging military way being a fine figure of a man vain of his uniform and of his rank he feels specially qualified in a respectful way to console her you can have a quiet word with him here, Mum. Shall I have to wait long? No, Mum, not a minute. We kept him in the bridewell for the night, and he's just been brought over here for the court-martial. Don't fret, Mum. He slept like a child, and has made a rare good breakfast. He is in good spirits. Tip-top, Mum. The chaplain looked in to see him last night, and he won seventeen shillings off him at spoil five. He spent it among us like a gentleman he is. Duty's duty, Mum, of course. But you're among friends here. The tramp of a couple of soldiers is heard approaching. There. I think he's coming. Richard comes in without a sign of care or captivity in his bearing. The sergeant nods to the two soldiers and shows them the key of the room in his hand. They withdraw. You're a good lady, sir. Richard going to her. What? My wife, my adored one. He takes her hand and kisses it with a perverse, raffish gallantry. How long do you allow a broken-hearted husband for leave-taking, Sergeant? As long as we can, sir. We shall not disturb you till the court sits. But it has struck the hour. So it has, sir. But there's a delay. General Burgoyne's just arrived. Gentlemanly Johnny, we call him, sir. And he won't have done finding fault with everything this side of half-past. I know him, sir. Served with him in Portugal. You may count on twenty minutes, sir, and by your leave I won't waste any more of them. He goes out locking the door. Richard immediately drops his raffish manner and turns to Judith with considerate sincerity. Mrs. Anderson, this visit is very kind of you. And how are you after last night? I had to leave you before you recovered, but I sent word to Essie to go and look after you. Did she understand the message? Oh, don't think of me. I haven't come here to talk about myself. Are they going to... to... Meaning to hang you? At noon, punctually. At least that was when they disposed of Uncle Peter. She shudders. Is your husband safe? Is he on the wing? He is no longer my husband. Richard opening his eyes wide. Eh? I disobeyed you. I told him everything. I expected him to come here and save you. I wanted him to come here and save you. He ran away instead. Well, that's what I meant him to do. What good would his staying have done? They'd only have hanged us both. Richard Dudgeon, on your honor, what would you have done in his place? Exactly what he has done, of course. Oh, why will you not be simple with me, honest and straightforward? If you are so selfish as that, why did you let them take you last night? Upon my life, Mrs. Anderson, I don't know. I've been asking myself that question ever since, and I can find no manner of reason for acting as I did. You know you did it for his sake. 
believing he was a more worthy man than yourself. Oh, no, that's a very pretty reason, I must say, but I'm not so modest as that. No, it wasn't for his sake. Judith, after a pause, during which she looked shamefacedly at him, blushing painfully. Was it for my sake? Richard gallantly. Well, you had a hand in it. It must have been a little for your sake. You let them take me, at all events. Oh, do you think I have not been telling myself that all night? Your death will be at my door. Impulsively, she gives him her hand and adds, with intense earnestness, If I could save you as you have saved him, I would do it, no matter how cruel the death was. Richard holding her hand and smiling, but keeping her almost at arm's length. I am very sure I shouldn't let you. Don't you see that I can save you? How? By changing clothes with me, eh? Judith disengaging her hand to touch his lips with it. Don't. Meaning, don't jest. No, by telling the court who you really are. Richard frowning. No use. They wouldn't spare me, and it would spoil half of his chance of escaping. They're determined to cow us by making an example of somebody on that gallows today. Well, let us cow them by showing that we can stand by one another to the death. That is the only force that can send Burgoyne back across the Atlantic and make America a nation. Oh, what does that all matter? Richard laughing. <laughs> True. What does it matter? What does anything matter? You see, men have these strange notions, Mrs. Anderson, and women see the folly of them. Women have to lose those they love through them. They can easily get fresh lovers. Oh, do you realize that you are going to kill yourself? The only man I have any right to kill, Mrs. Anderson. Don't be concerned. No woman will lose her lover through my death. Smiling. Bless you, nobody cares for me. Have you heard that my mother is dead? Dead? Of heart disease, in the night. Her last word to me was her curse. I don't think I could have borne her blessing. My other relatives will not grieve much on my account. Essie will cry for a day or two. But I have provided for her. I made my own will last night. Judith stonily, after a moment's silence. And I... You? Yes, I. Am I not to care at all? Not a scrap. Oh, you expressed your feelings towards me very frankly yesterday. What happened may have softened you for the moment, but believe me, Mrs. Anderson, you don't like a bone in my skin or a hair on my head. I shall be as good a riddance at twelve today as I should have been at twelve yesterday. What can I do to show you that you are mistaken? Don't trouble. I'll give you credit for liking me a little better than you did. All I say is that my death will not break your heart. Judith almost in a whisper. How do you know? She puts her hands on his shoulders and looks intently at him. Richard, amazed, divining the truth. Mrs. Anderson! The bell of the town clock strikes the quarter. He collects himself and removes her hands, saying rather coldly, Excuse me, they will be here for me presently. It is too late. It is not too late. Call me as a witness. They will never kill you when they know how heroically you have acted. Indeed. But if I don't go through with it, where will the heroism be? I shall simply have tricked them, and they'll hang me for that like a dog. Serve me right, too. Oh, I believe you want to die. No, I don't. Then why not try to save yourself? I implore you, listen. You said just now that you saved him for my sake, 
yes clutching him as he recoils with a gesture of denial a little for my sake well save yourself for my sake and i will go with you to the end of the world richard taking her by the wrists and holding her a little way from him looking steadily at her judith judith breathless delighted at the name yes if i said to please you that i did what i did ever so little for your sake i lied as men always lie to women you know how much i have lived with worthless men i and worthless women too well they could all rise to some sort of goodness and kindness when they were in love the word love comes from him with true puritan scorn that has taught me to set very little store by the goodness that only comes out red-hot what i did last night i did in cold blood caring not half so much for your husband or ruthlessly for you she droops stricken as i do for myself i had no motive and no interest all i can tell you is that when it came to the point whether i would take my neck out of the noose and put another man's into it i could not do it i don't know why not i see myself as a fool for my pains but i could not and i cannot i have been brought up standing by the law of my own nature and i may not go against it gallows or no gallows she has slowly raised her head and is now looking full at him i should have done the same for any other man in the town or any other man's wife releasing her do you understand that yes you mean that you do not love me richard revolted with fierce contempt is that all it means to you what more what worse can it mean to me the sergeant knocks the blow on the door jars on her heart oh one moment more she throws herself on her knees i pray to you hush come in the sergeant unlocks the door and opens it the guard is with him the sergeant coming in time's off sir quite ready sergeant now my dear he attempts to raise her judith clinging to him only one thing more i entreat you i implore you let me be present in the court i have seen major swindon he said i should be allowed if you asked it you will ask it it is my last request i shall never ask you anything again she clasps his knee i beg and pray it of you if i do will you be silent yes you will keep faith i will keep she breaks down sobbing richard taking her arm to lift her uh, just uh, her other arm sergeant they go out she sobbing convulsively supported by the two men meanwhile the council chamber is ready for the court-martial it is a large lofty room with a chair of state in the middle under a tall canopy with a gilt crown and maroon curtains with the royal monogram g r in front of the chair is a table also draped in maroon with a bell a heavy inkstand and writing materials on it several chairs are set at the table the door is at the right hand of the occupant of the chair of state when it has an occupant at present it is empty major swindon a pale sandy-haired very conscientious-looking man of about forty-five sits at the end of the table with his back to the door writing he is alone until the sergeant announces the general in a subdued manner which suggests that gentlemanly johnny has been making his presence felt rather heavily 
The general, sir. Swindon rises hastily. The general comes in. The sergeant goes out. General Burgoyne is fifty-five and very well preserved. He is a man of fashion, gallant enough to have made a distinguished marriage by an elopement, witty enough to write successful comedies, aristocratically connected enough to have had opportunities of high military distinction. His eyes, large, brilliant, apprehensive, and intelligent, are his most remarkable feature. Without them, his fine nose and small mouth would suggest rather more fastidiousness and less force than go to the making of a first-rate general. Just now his eyes are angry and tragic, and the mouth and nostrils tense. Major Swindon, I presume? Yes, General Burgoyne, if I mistake not. They bow to one another ceremoniously. I am glad to have the support of your presence this morning. It is not particularly lively business hanging this poor devil of a minister. Burgoyne throwing himself into Swindon's chair. No, sir, it is not. It is making too much of the fellow to execute him. What more could you have done if he had been a member of the Church of England? Martyrdom, sir, is what these people like. It is the only way in which a man can become famous without ability. However, you have committed us to hanging him, and the sooner he is hanged the better. We have arranged it for twelve o'clock. Nothing remains to be done except to try him. Burgoyne looking at him with suppressed anger. Nothing except to save our own necks, perhaps. Have you heard the news from Springtown? Nothing special. The latest reports are satisfactory. Burgoyne rising in amazement. Satisfactory, sir? Satisfactory? He stares at him for a moment, and then adds with grim intensity. I am glad you take that view of them. Swindon uh, puzzled. Do I understand that in your opinion? I do not express my opinion. I never stoop to that habit of profane language which unfortunately coarsens our profession. If I did, sir, perhaps I should be able to express my opinion of the news from Springtown, the news which you have apparently not heard. How soon do you get news from your supports here? In the course of a month, eh? Swindon turning sulky. I suppose the reports have been taken to you, sir, instead of to me. Is there anything serious? Burgoyne taking a report from his pocket and holding it up. Springtown is in the hands of the rebels. He throws the report on the table. Swindon aghast. Since yesterday? Since two o'clock this morning. Perhaps we shall be in their hands before two o'clock tomorrow morning. Have you thought of that? As to that, General, the British soldier will give a good account of himself. And therefore, I suppose, sir, the British officer need not know his business. 
the british soldier will get him out of all his blunders with the bayonet in future sir i must ask you to be a little less generous with the blood of your men and a little more generous with your own brains i am sorry i cannot pretend to your intellectual eminence sir i can only do my best and rely on the devotion of my countrymen may i ask if you are writing a melodrama major swindon swindon flushing no sir what a pity what a pity dropping his sarcastic tone and facing him suddenly and seriously do you at all realize sir that we have nothing standing between us and destruction but our own bluff and the sheepishness of these colonists they are men of the same english stock as ourselves six to one of us six to one sir and nearly half our troops are hessians brunswickers german dragoons and indians with scalping knives these are the countrymen on whose devotion you rely suppose the colonists find a leader suppose the news from springtown should turn out to mean that they have already found a leader what shall we do then eh swindon sullenly our duty sir i presume burgoyne again sarcastic giving him up as a fool quite so quite so thank you major swindon thank you now you've settled that question thrown a flood of light on the situation what a comfort to me to feel that i have at my side so devoted and able an officer to support me in this emergency i think sir it will probably relieve both of our feelings if we proceed to hang this dissenter without further delay he strikes the bell especially as i am debarred by my principles from the customary military vent for my feelings the sergeant appears bring your man in yes sir and mention to any officer you may meet that the court cannot wait any longer for him swindon keeping his temper with difficulty the staff is perfectly ready sir they have been waiting your convenience for fully half an hour perfectly ready sir so am i several officers come in and take their seats one of them sits at the end of the table furthest from the door and acts throughout as clerk to the court making notes of the proceedings the uniforms are those of the ninth twentieth twenty first twenty fourth forty seventh fifty third and sixty-second british infantry one officer is a major-general of the royal artillery there are also german officers of the hessian rifles and of german dragoon and brunswicker regiments oh good morning gentlemen sorry to disturb you i am sure very good of you to spare us a few moments will you preside sir burgoyne becoming additionally polished lofty 
sarcastic and urbane now that he is in public no sir i feel my own deficiencies too keenly to presume so far if you will kindly allow me i will sit at the feet of gamaliel he takes the chair at the end of the table next to the door and motions swindon to the chair of state waiting for him to be seated before sitting himself swindon greatly annoyed as you please sir i am only trying to do my duty under excessively trying circumstances he takes his place in the chair of state burgoyne relaxing his studied demeanour for the moment sits down and begins to read the report with knitted brows and careworn looks reflecting on his desperate situation and swindon's uselessness richard is brought in judith walks beside him two soldiers precede and two follow him with the sergeant in command they cross the room to the wall opposite the door but when richard has just passed before the chair of state the sergeant stops him with a touch on the arm and posts himself behind him at his elbow judith stands timidly at the wall four soldiers place themselves in a squad near her burgoyne looking up and seeing judith who is that woman prisoner's wife sir swindon nervously she begged me to allow her to be present and i thought you thought it would be a pleasure for her quite so quite so give the lady a chair and make her thoroughly comfortable the sergeant fetches a chair and places it near richard thank you sir she sits down after an awe-struck curtsy to burgoyne which he acknowledges by a dignified bend of his head swindon to richard sharply your name sir come you don't mean to say that you've brought me here without knowing who i am as a matter of form sir give your name as a matter of form then my name is anthony anderson presbyterian minister in this town burgoyne interested indeed pray mr anderson what do you gentlemen believe i shall be happy to explain if time has allowed me i cannot undertake to complete your conversion in less than a fortnight swindon snubbing him we are not here to discuss your views burgoyne with an elaborate bow to the unfortunate swindon i stand rebuked swindon embarrassed oh not you uh, as don't mention it any political views mr anderson i understand that that is just what we are here to find out do you mean to deny that you are a rebel i am an american sir what do you expect me to think of that speech mr anderson i never expect a soldier to think sir burgoyne is boundlessly delighted by this retort which almost reconciles him to the loss of america swindon whitening with anger i advise you not to be insolent prisoner you can't help yourself general when you make up your mind to hang a man you put yourself at a disadvantage with him why should i be civil to you i may as well be hanged for a sheep as a lamb you have no right to assume that the court has made up its mind without a fair trial 
and you will please not address me as general i am major swindon a thousand pardons i thought i had the honor of addressing gentlemanly johnny sensation among the officers the sergeant has a narrow escape from a guffaw i believe that i am gentlemanly johnny sir at your service my more intimate friends call me general burgoyne richard bows with perfect politeness you will understand sir i hope since you seem to be a gentleman and a man of some spirit in spite of your calling that if we should have the misfortune to hang you we shall do so as a mere matter of political necessity and military duty without any personal ill-feeling oh quite so that makes all the difference in the world of course they all smile in spite of themselves and some of the younger officers burst out laughing judith her dread and horror deepening at every one of these jests and compliments how can you you promised to be silent believe me madam your husband is placing us under the greatest obligation by taking this very disagreeable business so thoroughly in the spirit of a gentleman sergeant give mr anderson a chair the sergeant does so richard sits down now major swindon we are waiting for you you are aware i presume mr anderson of your obligations as a subject of his majesty king george the third i am aware sir that his majesty king george the third is about to hang me because i object to lord north's robbing me that is a treasonable speech sir yes i meant it to be burgoyne strongly deprecating this line of defence but still polite don't you think mr anderson that this is a rather if you will excuse the word a vulgar line to take why should you cry out robbery because of a stamp duty and a tea duty and so forth after all it is the essence of your position as a gentleman that you pay with good grace it is not the money general but to be swindled by a pink-headed lunatic like king george swindon's candlelized chut sir silence the sergeant in stentorian tones greatly shocked silence burgoyne unruffled ah that is another point of view my position does not allow of my going into that except in private but shrugging his shoulders of course mr anderson if you are determined to be hanged judith flinches there's nothing more to be said an unusual taste however with a final shrug swinton to burgoyne shall we call witnesses what need is there of witnesses if the townspeople here had listened to me you would have found the streets barricaded the houses loopholed and the people in arms to hold the town against you to the last man but you arrived unfortunately before we had got out of the talking stage and then it was too late well sir we shall teach you and your townspeople a lesson they will not forget have you anything more to say i 
think you might have the decency to treat me as a prisoner of war and shoot me like a man instead of hanging me like a dog. Burgoyne sympathetically. Now there, Mr. Anderson, you talk like a civilian, if you will excuse me saying so. Have you any idea of the average marksmanship of the army of His Majesty King George the Third? If we make you up a firing party, what will happen? Half of them will miss you. The rest will make a mess of the business and leave you to the provost-marshal's pistol. Whereas we can hang you in a perfectly workmanlike and agreeable way. Let me persuade you to be hanged, Mr. Anderson. Judith sick with horror. My God! Richard to Judith. Your promise. To Burgoyne. Thank you, General. That view of the case did not occur to me before. To oblige you, I would draw my objection to the rope. Hang me by all means. Will twelve o'clock suit you, Mr. Anderson? I shall be at your disposal then, General. Burgoyne rising. Nothing more to be said, gentlemen. They all rise. Judith rushing to the table. Oh, you are not going to murder a man like that without a proper trial, without thinking of what you are doing, without... She cannot find words. Is this how you keep your promise? If I am not to speak, you must defend yourself, save yourself, tell them the truth. I've told them enough truth to hang me ten times over. If you say another word, you will risk other lives, but you will not save mine. My good lady, our only desire is to save unpleasantness. What satisfaction would it give you to have a solemn fuss made with my friend Swindon in a black cap and so forth? I am sure we are greatly indebted to the admirable tact and gentlemanly feeling shown by your husband. Judah throwing the words in his face. Oh, you are mad. Is it nothing to you what wicked things you do, if only you do it like a gentleman? Is it nothing to you whether you are a murderer or not, if only you murder in a red coat? Desperately. You shall not hang him. That man is not my husband. The officers look at one another and whisper, some of the Germans asking their neighbors to explain what the woman has said. Burgoyne, who has been visibly shaken by Judith's reproach, recovers himself promptly at this new development. Richard, meanwhile, raises his voice above the buzz. I appeal to you, gentlemen, to put an end to this. She will not believe that she cannot save me. Break up the court. Burgoyne, in a voice so quiet and firm that it restores silence at once. One moment, Mr. Anderson. One moment, gentlemen. He resumes his seat. Swindon and the officers follow his example let me understand you clearly madam do you mean that this gentleman is not your husband or merely i wish to put it with all delicacy that you are not his wife i don't know what you mean i say that he is not my husband that my husband has escaped this man took his place to save him ask anyone in the town Send out into the street for the first person you find there, and bring him in as a witness. He will tell you that the prisoner is not Anthony Anderson. 
Burgoyne quietly as before. Sergeant. Yes, sir. Go out into the street and bring in the first townsman you see there. The sergeant making for the door. Yes, sir. Burgoyne as the sergeant passes. The first clean, sober townsman you see. Yes, sir. He goes out. Sit down, Mr. Anderson, if I may call you so for the present. Richard sits down. Sit down, madam, whilst we wait. Give the lady a newspaper. Shame! Burgoyne keenly, with a half-smile. If you are not her husband, sir, the case is not a serious one. For her. Richard bites his lip, silenced. Judith to Richard as she returns to her seat. I couldn't help it. He shakes his head. She sits down. You will understand, of course, Mr. Anderson, that you must not build on this little incident. We are bound to make an example of somebody. I quite understand. I suppose there's no use in my explaining. I think we should prefer independent testimony, if you don't mind. The sergeant, with a packet of papers in his hand, returns conducting Christie, who is much scared. The sergeant giving Burgoyne the packet. Dispatches, sir. Delivered by a corporal of the 53rd. Dead beat with hard riding, sir. Burgoyne opens the dispatches and presently becomes absorbed in them. They are so serious as to take his attention completely from the court-martial. The sergeant to Christie. Now then, attention! And take your hat off! He posts himself in charge of Christie, who stands on Burgoyne's side of the court. Richard, in his usual bullying tone, to Christie. Don't be frightened, you fool. You're only wanted as a witness. They're not going to hang you. What's your name? Christie. Christopher Dudgeon, you blatant idiot. Give your full name. Be silent, prisoner. You must not prompt the witness. Very well. But I warn you, you'll get nothing out of him unless you shake it out of him. He has been too well brought up by a pious mother to have any sense or manhood left in him. Burgoyne springing up and speaking to the sergeant in a startling voice. Where is the man who brought these? In the guardroom, sir. Burgoyne goes out with a haste that sets the officers exchanging looks. Swindon to Christie. Do you know Anthony Anderson, the Presbyterian minister? Of course I do. Implying that Swindon must be an ass not to know it. Is he here? Christie staring round. I don't know. Do you see him? No. You seem to know the prisoner. Do you mean Dick? Which is Dick? Christie pointing to Richard. Him. What is his name? Dick. Answer properly, you jumping jackass. What do they know about Dick? Well, you are Dick, ain't you? What am I to say? Address me, sir, and do you. Prisoner, be silent. Tell us who the prisoner is. He's my brother, Dudgeon. Your brother? Yes. You are sure he is not Anderson? Who? Me, 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 you... Silence, sir. Silence! Richard, impatiently. <sighs> to Christie. 
He wants to know am I Minister Anderson. Tell him and stop grinning like a zany. Christy, grinning more than ever. You, Pastor Anderson? To Swindon. Why, Mr. Anderson's a minister, a very good man. And Dick's a bad character. The respectable people won't speak to him. He's the bad brother. I'm the good one. The officers laugh outright. The soldiers grin. Who arrested this man? I did, sir. I found him in the minister's house, sitting at tea, with the lady, with his coat off, quite at home. If he isn't married to her, he ought to be. Did he answer to the minister's name? Yes, sir, but not to a minister's nature. You ask the chaplain, sir. Swindon to Richard threateningly. So, sir, you have attempted to cheat us, and your name is Richard Dudgeon. You've found it out at last, have you? Dudgeon is a name well known to us, eh? Yes. Peter Dudgeon, whom you murdered, was my uncle. Hmm. He compresses his lips and looks at Richard with vindictive gravity. Are they going to hang you, Dick? Yes. Get out, they've done with you. And may I keep the china peacocks? Richard, jumping up. Get out! Get out, you blithering baboon, you... Christy flies, panic-stricken. Swindon rising. All rise. Since you have taken the minister's place, Richard Dudgeon, you shall go through with it. The execution will take place at twelve o'clock as arranged, and unless Anderson surrenders before then, you shall take his place on the gallows. Sergeant, take your man out. No, no. Swindon fiercely dreading a renewal of her entreaties. Take that woman away. Richard springing across the table with a tiger-like bound and seizing Swindon by the throat. You infernal scoundrel! The sergeant rushes to the rescue from one side, the soldiers from the other. They seize Richard and drag him back to his place. Swindon, who has been thrown supine on the table, rises, arranging his stock. He is about to speak when he is anticipated by Burgoyne, who has just appeared at the door with two papers in his hand, a white letter and a blue dispatch. Burgoyne advancing to the table, elaborately cool. What is this? What's happening? Mr. Anderson, I'm astonished at you. I'm sorry I disturbed you, General. I really wanted to strangle your understrapper there. Breaking out violently at Swindon. Why do you raise the devil in me by bullying the woman like that? You oatmeal-faced dog, I'd twist your cursed head off with the greatest satisfaction. He puts out his hand to the sergeant. Here, handcuff me, will you? Or I'll not undertake to keep my fingers off him. The sergeant takes out a pair of handcuffs and looks to Burgoyne for instructions. Have you addressed profane language to the lady, Major Swindon? Swindon very angry. No, sir, certainly not. That question should not have been put to me. I ordered the woman to be removed, as she was disorderly, and the fellow sprang at me. Put away those handcuffs. I am perfectly able to take care of myself. Now you talk like a man, I have no quarrel with you. Mr. Anderson... His name is Dudgeon, sir. Richard Dudgeon. He is an impostor. Nonsense, sir. You hanged Dudgeon at Springtown. 
It was my uncle, General. Oh, your uncle. To Swindon, handsomely. I beg your pardon, Major Swindon. Swindon acknowledges the apology stiffly. Burgoyne turns to Richard. We are somewhat unfortunate in our relations with your family. Well, Mr. Dudgeon, what I wanted to ask you is this. Who is... Reading the name from the letter. William Maindeck Parshotter. He is the mayor of Springtown. Is William Maindeck and so on a man of his word? Mm, is he selling you anything? No. Then you may depend on him. Thank you, Mr. Dudgeon. By the way, since you are not Mr. Anderson, uh, do we still... Eh, Major Swindon? Meaning, do we still hang him? The arrangements are unaltered, General. Ah, indeed. I am sorry. Good morning, Mr. Dudgeon. Good morning, madam. Richard interrupting Judith almost fiercely as she is about to make some wild appeal and at taking her arm resolutely. Not one word more. Come. She looks imploringly at him, but is overborne by his determination. They are marched out by the four soldiers. The sergeant, very sulky, walking between Swindon and Richard, whom he watches as if he were a dangerous animal. Gentlemen, we need not detain you. Major Swindon, a word with you. The officers go out. Burgoyne waits with unruffled serenity until the last of them disappears. Then he becomes very grave and addresses Swindon for the first time without his title. Swindon, do you know what this is? Showing him the letter. What? A demand for a safe conduct for an officer of their militia to come here and arrange terms with us. Oh, they're giving in. They add that they are sending the man who raised Springtown last night and drove us out, so that we may know that we are dealing with an officer of importance. Pooh! He will be fully empowered to arrange the terms of... Guess what? Their surrender, I hope. No. Our evacuation of the town. They offer us just six hours to clear out. What monstrous impudence! What shall we do, eh? March on Springtown and strike a decisive blow at once. Hmm. Turning to the door. Come to the adjutant's office. What for? To write out that safe conduct. He puts his hand to the doorknob to open it. Swinton, who has not budged. General Burgoyne. Burgoyne returning. Sir... It is my duty to tell you, sir, that I do not consider the threats of a mob of rebellious tradesmen a sufficient reason for our giving way. Suppose I resign my command to you. What will you do? I will undertake to do what we have marched south from Boston to do, and what General Howe has marched north from New York to do. 
effect a junction at Albany and wipe out the rebel army with our united forces. We're going enigmatically. And will you wipe out our enemies in London too? In London? What enemies? Jobbery and snobbery, incompetence and red tape. He holds up the dispatch and adds, with despair in his face and voice, I have just learnt, sir, that General Howe is still in New York. Swindon thunderstruck. Good God! He has disobeyed orders? He has received no orders, sir. Some gentleman in London forgot to dispatch them. He was leaving town for his holiday, I believe. To avoid upsetting his arrangements, England will lose her American colonies. And in a few days you and I will be at Saratoga with 5,000 men to face 16,000 rebels in an impregnable position. Swinton appalled. Impossible. I beg your pardon. I can't believe it. What will history say? History, sir, will tell lies as usual. Come, we must send the safe conduct. He goes out. Swindon following distractedly. My God, my God, we shall be wiped out. As noon approaches, there is excitement in the marketplace. The gallows which hangs there permanently for the terror of evildoers, with such minor advertisers and examples of crime as the pillory, the whipping post, and the stocks, has a new rope attached, with the noose hitched up to one of the uprights, out of reach of the boys. Its ladder, too, has been brought out and placed in position by the town beadle, who stands by to guard it from unauthorized climbing. The Webster Bridge townsfolk are present in force, and in high spirits, for the news has spread that it is the devil's disciple, and not the minister that the Continentals, so they call Burgoyne's forces, are about to hang. Consequently, the execution can be enjoyed without any misgivings as to its righteousness, or to the cowardice of allowing it to take place without a struggle. There is even some fear of a disappointment, as midday approaches and the arrival of the beetle with the latter remains the only sign of preparation. But at last reassuring shouts of, Here they come, here they are, are heard, and a company of soldiers with fixed bayonets half british infantry half hessians tramp quickly into the middle of the market-place driving the crowd to the sides halt front dress the soldiers change their column into a square enclosing the gallows their petty officers energetically led by the sergeant hustling the persons who find themselves inside the square out at the corners now then out of it with you out of it some of you'll get strung up yourselves presently. Form that square there, will you? You damned Hoosians. No talking German to them. Talk to their toes with the butt ends of your muskets. They'll understand that. Get out of it, will you? He comes upon Judith standing near the gallows. Now that you've no call here. May I not stay? What harm am I doing? I want none of your argufying. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. Running to see a man hang that's not your husband. 
and he's no better than yourself. I've told my major he was a gentleman, and then he goes and tries to strangle him, and calls his blessed majesty a lunatic. So out of it with you, double quick. Will you take these two silver dollars and let me stay? The sergeant, without an instant's hesitation, looks quickly and furtively round as he shoots the money dexterously into his pocket. Then he raises his voice in virtuous indignation. Me? Take money in the execution of my duty? Certainly not. Now I'll tell you what I'll do to teach you to corrupt the king's officer. I'll put you under arrest until the execution's over. You just stand there, and don't let me see you as much as move from that spot until you're let. With a swift wink at her, he points to the corner of the square behind the gallows on his right, and turns noisily away, shouting, Now then, dress up and keep them back, will you? Cries of hush and silence are heard among the townfolk, and the sound of a military band playing the dead march from Saul is heard. The crowd becomes quiet at once, and the sergeant and petty officers, hurrying to the back of the square with a few whispered orders and some stealthy hustling, cause it to open and admit the funeral procession, which is protected from the crowd by a double file of soldiers. First come Burgoyne and Swindon, who on entering the square glance with distaste at the gallows and avoid passing under it by wheeling a little to the right and stationing themselves on that side then mr Budenell, the chaplain in his surplice with his prayer book open in his hand walking beside richard who is moody and disorderly he walks doggedly through the gallows framework and posts himself a little in front of it behind him comes the executioner a stalwart soldier in his shirt-sleeves following him two soldiers haul a light military wagon finally comes the band which posts itself at the back of the square and finishes the dead march judith watching richard painfully steals down to the gallows and stands leaning against its right post during the conversation which follows the two soldiers place the cart under the gallows and stand by the shafts which point backwards the executioner takes a set of steps from the cart and places it ready for the prisoner to mount. Then he climbs the tall ladder which stands against the gallows and cuts the string by which the rope is hitched up, so that the noose drops dangling over the cart, into which he steps as he descends. Richard, with suppressed impatience, to Budenell. Look here, sir. This is no place for a man of your profession. Hadn't you better go away? I appeal to you, prisoner. If you have any sense of decency left to listen to the ministrations of the chaplain and pay due heed to the solemnity of the occasion. The chaplain gently reproving Richard. Try to control yourself and submit to the divine will. He lifts his book to proceed with the service. Answer for your own will, sir, and those of your accomplices here. Indicating Burgoyne and Swindon. I see little divinity about them or you. You talked to me of Christianity when you were in the act of hanging your enemies. Was there ever such blasphemous nonsense? To Swindon more rudely. You've got up the solemnity of the occasion as you call it to impress the people with your own dignity. Handel's music and a clergyman to make murder look like piety. Do you suppose I'm going to help you? You've asked me to choose the rope because you don't know your own trade well enough to shoot me properly. Well, hang away and have done with it. Swindon to the chaplain. Can you do nothing with him, Mr. Brudenell? I will try, sir. Beginning to read. 
man that is born of woman hath richard fixing his eyes on him thou shalt not kill the book drops in brudenell's hands chaplain confessing his embarrassment what am i to say mr dudgeon let me alone man can't you i think mr brudenell that as the usual professional observations seem to strike mr dudgeon as incongruous under the circumstances you had better omit them until uh, until mr dudgeon can no longer be inconvenienced by them brudenell with a shrug shuts his book and retires behind the gallows you seem to be in a hurry mr dudgeon richard with the horror of death upon him <sighs> do you think this is a pleasant sort of thing to be kept waiting for you've made up your mind to commit murder well do it and have done with it mr dudgeon we are only doing this because you're paid to do it you insolent he swallows his rage burgoyne with much charm of manner ah uh, i am really sorry that you should think that mr dudgeon if you knew what my commission costs me and what my pay is you would think better of me i should be glad to part from you on friendly terms hark ye general burgoyne if you think that i like being hanged you're mistaken i don't like it and i don't mean to pretend that i do and if you think that I'm obliged to you for hanging me in a gentlemanly way, you're wrong there, too. I take the whole business in devilish bad part, and the only satisfaction I have in it is that you'll feel a good deal meaner than I'll look when it's over. He turns away, and is striding to the cart when Judith advances and interposes with her arms stretched out to him. Richard, feeling that a very little will upset his self-possession, shrinks from her, crying, What are you doing here? This is no place for you. She makes a gesture as if to touch him. He recoils impatiently. No, go away. Go away, you'll unnerve me. Take her away, will you? Won't you bid me goodbye? Richard allowing her to take his hand. Oh, goodbye. Goodbye. Now go. Go. Quickly. She clings to his hand. Will not be put off with so cold a last farewell at last as he tries to disengage himself throws herself on his breast in agony swindon angrily to the sergeant who alarmed at judith's movement has come from the back of the square to pull her back and stopped irresolutely on finding that he is too late how is this why is she inside the lines the sergeant guiltily oh, i don't know sir she's that artful can't keep her away you were bribed no sir fall back he obeys richard imploring to those around him and finally to burgoyne as the least stolid of them <sighs> take her away do you think i want a woman near me now burgoyne going to judith and taking her hand here madam you had better keep inside the lines but stand here behind us and don't look richard with a great sobbing sigh of relief as she releases him and turns to burgoyne flies for refuge to the cart and mounts into it the executioner takes off his coat and pinions him 
Judith, resisting Burgoyne quietly, and drawing her hand away. No, I must stay. I won't look. She goes to the right of the gallows. She tries to look at Richard, but turns away with a frightful shudder, and falls on her knees in prayer. Brudinel comes towards her from the back of the square. Burgoyne nodding approvingly as she kneels. Ah, quite so. Do not disturb her, Mr. Brudinel. That will do very nicely. Brudinel nods also, and withdraws a little, watching her sympathetically. Burgoyne resumes his former position, and takes out a handsome gold chronometer. Now then, are those preparations made? We must not detain Mr. Dudgeon. By this time Richard's hands are bound behind him, and the noose is round his neck. The two soldiers take the shaft of the wagon, ready to pull it away. The executioner, standing in the cart behind Richard, makes a sign to the sergeant. The sergeant to Burgoyne. Ready, sir. Have you anything more to say, Mr. Dudgeon? It wants two minutes to twelve still. Richard, in the strong voice of a man who has conquered the bitterness of death, your watch is two minutes slow by the town clock, which I can see from here, General. The town clock strikes the first stroke of twelve. Involuntarily, the people flinch at the sound, and a subdued groan breaks from them. Amen. My life for the world's future. Anderson shouting as he rushes into the marketplace. Amen, and stop the execution. He bursts through the line of soldiers opposite Burgoyne, and rushes panting to the gallows i am anthony anderson the man you want the crowd intensely excited listens with all its ears judith half rising stares at him then lifts her hands like one whose dearest prayer has been granted indeed then you are just in time to take your place on the gallows arrest him at a sign from the sergeant two soldiers come forward to seize anderson Anderson thrusting a paper under Swindon's nose. There's my safe conduct, sir. Safe conduct? Are you? I am. The two soldiers take him by the elbows. Tell these men to take their hands off me. Let him go. Fall back. The two men return to their places. The townsfolk raise a cheer and begin to exchange exultant looks with a presentiment of triumph as they see their pastor speaking with their enemies in the gate. Anderson exhaling a deep breath of relief, and dabbing his perspiring brow with his handkerchief. Thank God I was in time. Burgoyne, calm as ever, and still watching his hand. Ample time, sir. Plenty of time. I should never dream of hanging any gentleman by an American clock. He puts up his watch. Yes, we are some minutes ahead of you already, General. Now tell them to take the rope from the neck of that American citizen. Burgoyne to the executioner in the cart, very politely. Kindly undo, Mr. Dudgeon. The executioner takes the rope from Richard's neck, unties his hands, and helps him on with his coat. Judith stealing timidly to Anderson. Tony. Anderson putting his arm round her shoulders, and bantering her affectionately. Well, what do you think of your husband now, eh? 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 I am ashamed. 
she hides her face against his breast you look disappointed major swindon you look defeated general burgoyne i am sir and i am humane enough to be glad of it richard jumps down from the cart brudenell offering his hand to help him and runs to anderson whose left hand he shakes heartily the right being occupied by judith by the way mr anderson i do not quite understand the safe conduct was for a commander of the militia i understand that you are um he looks as pointedly as his good manners permit at the riding-boots the pistols and richard's coat and adds a clergyman anderson between judith and richard sir it is in the hour of trial that a man finds his true profession this foolish young man placing his hand on richard's shoulder boasted himself the devil's disciple but when the hour of trial came to him he found that it was his destiny to suffer and be faithful to the death i thought myself a decent minister of the gospel of peace but when the hour of trial came to me i found it was my destiny to be a man of action and that my place was amid the thunder of the captains and the shouting so i am starting life at fifty as captain anthony anderson of the springtown militia and the devil's disciple here will start presently as the reverend richard dudgeon and wag his pow in my old pulpit and give good advice to this silly sentimental little wife of mine putting his other hand on her shoulder she steals a glance at richard to see how the prospect pleases him your mother told me richard that i should never have chosen judith if i'd been born for the ministry i am afraid she was right so by your leave you may keep my coat and i'll keep yours minister i should say captain i have behaved like a fool like a hero much the same thing perhaps with some bitterness towards himself but no if i had been any good i should have done for you what you did for me instead of making a vain sacrifice not vain my boy it takes all sorts to make a world saints as well as soldiers turning to burgoyne and now general time presses and america is in a hurry have you realized that though you may occupy towns and win battles you cannot conquer a nation my good sir without a conquest you cannot have an aristocracy come and settle the matter at my quarters at your service sir to richard see judith home for me will you my boy he hands her over to him now general he goes busily up the market-place towards the town hall leaving judith and richard together burgoyne follows him a step or two then checks himself and turns to richard oh by the way mr dudgeon i shall be glad to see you at lunch at half-past one he pauses a moment and adds with politely veiled slyness bring mrs anderson if she will be so good to swindon who is fuming take it quietly major swindon your friend the british soldier can stand up to anything except the british war office he follows anderson the sergeant to swindon what orders sir orders what use are orders now there's no army back to quarters and be done he turns on his heel and goes the sergeant pugnacious and patriotic repudiating the idea of defeat check, check. now 
Knock up your chins and show them you don't give a damn for them. Slope, humps, force, wheel, quick, march. The drum marks time with a tremendous bang. The band strikes up British grenadiers, and the sergeant, Boudinel, and the English troops march off defiantly to their quarters. The townsfolk press in behind and follow them up the market, jeering at them, and the town band, a very primitive affair, brings up the rear, playing Yankee Doodle. Essie, who comes in with them, runs to Richard. Oh, Dick! No, no, come, come. I don't mind being hanged, but I will not be cried over. No, I promise I'll be good. She tries to restrain her tears, but cannot. I... I want to see where the soldiers are going to. She goes a little way up the market, pretending to look after the crowd. Promise me you will never tell him. Don't be afraid. They shake hands on it. Essie calling to them. They're coming back. They want you. Jubilation in the market. The townsfolk surge back again in wild enthusiasm with their band, and hoist Richard on their shoulders, cheering him. Curtain. End of Act Three. End of The Devil's Disciple by George Bernard Shaw.